Season 2, a serial podcast about a man they would call Joe Millionaire, a rapist. A story of absolute perversion kneeling at the altar of the god oil, bathed in power, drugs, and slathered in sex. Thank you for listening to True Crime 49. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the bottom of the clouds. Anchorage, Alaska is a town nearly surrounded by deadly silt mud. It is soaked to the touch and then it grabs you. Your friends laughing are tugging to pull you out and you feel your knee begin to suck inward and fear sweeps into you. Your foot slips out of your shoe and you look down into the death mud and peer into your dry shoe. The grass that grows out here seems to stink. It is so bleak upon the tidal flats. And there's something nasty in the weed grass and the mud water. Welcome to True Crime 49. The white beluga whale can blast sound waves from his huge forehead because it's filled with gallons of acoustic jelly. Swimming by, scanning the rocks and all the other soft things in 3D with his forehead peering out between black eyes and a vision of blurry oil. And they huff when they look up at the rusted and obsolete microwave antennas. Beluga Point is no longer strategic, it is now just a pull-off on the highway. And there are three little kids safely playing down by the boulders, throwing stones into the water. The beluga can see the warm, fat little toddler with his soft, gummy bones. And the oldest one is in a trance and is terrified. There's a commotion around that thing laying in the mud. It's almost invisible. Pulse back and sonar shows that it is cold and dead, and the thing is half in this world, and somehow half in another. The parent and the other adult are running down to the commotion at the water's edge. The beluga whale was perhaps puzzled as the whale pod traveled up turning an arm into the evening. It wouldn't have been later until the whale could have figured it out. The head and the legs had been cut off of that thing at the water's edge. The beluga stared up at the lights in the sky that evening as a silty wave washed over her eye. The stars smeared glassy and washed away in the strong current of the tide. June 2003. A headless, legless torso was found by Beluga Point in Alaska. Perhaps a child or a small woman. Fingerprinting was inconclusive. DNA was collected and sent outside to Quantico, Virginia. The Denina peoples had watched as ten-foot walls of water roared by as a bore tide. The main tide could be over thirty feet tall, and they called it Tikotnu the big ocean that moves like a river. And when they made surveys from the helicopters and the satellite imagery to make electricity from the ocean that moves like a river, they measured the waters of Cook Inlet as strong as a third of all of the rivers in the nation combined. A father and son plowing in hip waders waist deep across the muddy water, chuckling to themselves that they know of a secret spot where to cross, risking it in between the tides and they could get out into the lonely world of the sea ducks, and they had it all to themselves. But their shotguns became instantly different in their hands as they were standing alone out on the flats, standing over half of a slimy ghoul. September 2003. A father and a son found another headless, legless torso, 
1,000 yards from Ocean View Drive. There was a well-publicized missing girl in Anchorage, and the town was anxious to hear the identities of these two torsos. America's Most Wanted noted the cut marks or dismemberment marks seemed to be similar on both torsos recovered. On the paper forms at the examiner's office, there is a box that is empty and it asks, Cause of Death. And it even gives you a few empty lines to fill in the blanks if you need to. The skin used to be fed from underneath and it kept out a host of bugs and bacteria crawling all over you. They were infatuated with our holes. The skin constantly secreting various oils and salts and toxins just to fuck with them. All of this protection softly connected to the meat animal. But muscles became rigid in a chemical clenching of the hand like a death flower. And the puffy and soggy skin couldn't hold on and it separated into the glove. Loosely still there. Through the nasty plastic bag looking skin the hand beneath looks to be in terrible pain. But it's not. And all of the bacteria chanting. Climbing over every wall and slittering up finally into every opening relaxed. Up and inside. The organs in the sagging heavy chemistry lab of the gut pile. It's so stinky. It's long gone. The cavity opened to the air, connecting all the old holes, now massive and raspy around the edges. The cold water had really dragged it out in slow motion. The tidal flats of decay welcoming her like a queen, gloved hand barely waving once in a while at high tide. They slid the slippery ghoul onto the table and maybe they got off easy because when they wiped the silt smearing away on her lower back there was a tattoo. Upon closer look, it appeared to be a brand, puffed in her flesh, from something like a cheap hotel wire coat hanger. To what cause is such a sacrifice? Unto what wisdom does it pray to? And it said, Marty. They took a photo of it, and had it printed up big, and it was inside the folder, and it was inside their hands when they went up to Highland Correctional Facility. And they went through the outer fences, and through the main walls, and deeper in the corridors, all the way to where the inmates live within the walls. To show it around and see what happens, play the room, and feel out the players. The workers up at Highland often say, whenever it applies, the same set of words like they were in a cult. They say, Just because you were molested as a child does not mean you're going to end up at Highland as a prostitute. But every single prostitute that comes through Highland has been molested as a child. Cutting ties with everything, just to not to have to look at it. Sobbing in anger, and the come down, catching your breath and then gag in your throat, still sobbing. The eyes gasp for breath, and a gasp for relief, as a wretch. She never felt like she did before, when she was sky high. And he crept up with his endless bag, and he sprinkled some on her nose, and on her breasts, and on her belly. And he told her she was special, and that he loved her. Sitting in the passenger side, checking her makeup in the mirror, he was coming back to the car, and she was about to tell him about something that had happened to her today. And the door opened with the dome light on, and when he sloughed into the seat and shut the door, he backhanded her, smacking the lips and the nose. He said he almost cried three days later, and said he even pleaded to God. Then he dragged her by the hair, and he burned her flesh with a cheap wire coat hanger and a lighter one time. All of the daydreams a little girl like her never had, there had to have been one in there somewhere. Every once in a while, like when she came out of jail mostly, her mom would always tell her, sitting across from the table with coffee, that she could go free and have a real life. 
and was always there, she said, as soon as she was ready. And there had to have been a daydream down in this somewhere when he started making her go with guys for money while he waited outside. She couldn't believe it was her in the mirror, and every once in a while there was a date that was stuck. She knew it wasn't her they were doing it to. It was themselves and someone they were thinking of all at the same time. But she was the brunt of it, putting things in her hair, looking around for objects, shuffling on knees on the carpet. His arm was getting tired. But it was okay because, most of the time, she was barely there. And from the testimony of some rasped-out hag in the joint when Marty was working that one redhead girl, on the street her name was Ruby. According to the Polaris Project, sex traffickers carefully and methodically work to gain the victim's trust, create a degree of dependence, and subtly promote the idea that selling sex services is necessary. Traffickers get to know their victim and use what they learn to make it appear they are the perfect match, the answer to their dreams, the person they can count on. They listen, provide support, and bide their time. Once traffickers know what victims want or need, they give it to them, or at least dangle it in front of them, letting them taste what it feels like to be loved or safe or taken care of. Along with threats and economic control, traffickers use rewards and punishments, fear and violence, along with kindness and caring, to create trauma bonds that make it hard for victims to sort through their feelings and make a choice to leave, even if they are physically able to do so. Ultimately, successful grooming results in vulnerable people cooperating in their own exploitation and abuse, and believing they have made the choices to do so independently. The examiner over his breakfast and coffee had already determined what he would do. The first torso had been in so much better shape it breaks your heart to see how small it was. A young girl, no tattoos. And when the examiner took the young girl's hand in his own and had dabbed her fingers on the ink pad, the prince came back from the computers empty, all for nothing, too soon and too late, all at once. A tinge went down the examiner's back as the razor peeled masterfully the skin from the fingertips of this half-slimy ghoul on the table, and it took some time, chemically, to get the skin back until it was good enough to be fastened onto the nasty little robot hand and they dabbed the ink pad and the printer started printing. A timeline with notes, and almost the topography itself, of a horrible road to perdition. Some speculate the head and legs were removed to make disposal of the bodies easier. Criminal psychologist and serial murder expert James Fox explained of the case to KTVA, many serial killers and murderers generally will intensify the feeling of power and dominance they have over the victim, not just by taking their lives, but by taking their limbs. State medical examiner Frank Falco remarked, there is a great deal of sadness with this job. Dr. Falco has identified and autopsied Alaska's deceased, some more notorious than others, like Timothy Treadwell and Della Brown. Dr. Falco would start his autopsy with the question, who are you? Why did you die? Anchorage waited for the Emmy to make his observations with bated breath. Lying in the mud out here in the salt grass, the swampy smell goes up to the shoreline with all the trees and bushes, 
past a trail, and then you are over a sidewalk. These ocean view sunsets make this a prestigious neighborhood. Among the houses of houses we find one. In the attic there is a small bird, dried and forgotten, it had become trapped how many summers ago. Its skull still left peering out through a crack as the seasons change in freedom. The young girl is on the couch with the old man. He asks her something and when she answers, he is glee. Standing in the shower this morning, when Mr. Millionaire asks you tonight how old you are, tell him that you're 12. Trust me, it'll get him off a lot faster. All of it dulled and so far away, looking down from far above, flying on crack cocaine. He always ran girls, but this time something had changed. The first time was when she had to reach back and open the rear door. The handle was all fucked up. And get the door so the new girl could slide out of the seat and head up the sidewalk to the dimly lit condominium entry door. When the girl looked back over her shoulder, something happened. It felt like a single strand of the queen's spider silk at an angle across her face, the high side just below her eye, and everything stopped. And a collapsing had begun inside of her. It went away, but it never left, and the strand of spider silk dragging behind her now in the fog. And it would snatch upon memories from deep in the clouds, and the dream would float across her lap the strangest of times, and the most unexpected of moments. He had told her to take the girl and hand wash her hair after they picked her up from that one guy's house. It took her by surprise and it never made sense, a pounding in her chest and a wave rising and then dropping away to the deep right below her breath. She almost couldn't breathe when the girl's beautiful hair was slipping through her fingers, the silky pearl hand soap that was next to the sink bowl squished into the hair. Washing away the defilement, well paid for. And she was trying to fake it that everything was normal, when a tear ran down her cheek, and it shocked her, and her two corner teeth touched in a glint of anger, instinct in its last stand backed into the corner. And it's blown away in a wave washing over the decks. And the girl was startled when the hard-ass bitch blarbled out sobbing. The girl looked back over her shoulder and saw in Ruby's eyes that she was coming down out of orbit, blowing through cloud systems of emotions, in awe of releasing so much pain all at once, the chest racking. And then the old worn-out pieces do their stuff with the forging of a stiffened spine and defiant. The girl saw the lady with soapy, slimy hands lose the fight with the damn water. And the lady giving into it, and she looked upon the girl like the deep voice had been telling her, and she went over the ledge, and it felt so good, and she flashed her eyes as if to steal. And then she allowed herself to look upon the girl like she would love a daughter. And the dimensions opened like crosswise accordions, and she is looking at herself, 
and she is nurturing herself and she is looking at the girl and they are smiling together. And the girl can feel the sunshine in her eyes and it is stronger than the shame. And they allow themselves to hide away from the world, stealing moments they've never had before. But she told her too many stories and the young wild heart believed them all. And she knew it immediately after she came down the stairs and grabbed a string for the light bulb and the chain went click. Michelle T. Rothy, known as Ruby, was born on February 26, 1971. She moved to Alaska in hopes of getting married and raising a family, a wholesome daydream. Instead, an atopic pregnancy, a pregnancy that occurs outside of the uterus, typically in the fallopian tube, left Ruby unable to have children. Ruby spiraled into depression. She began using drugs, and soon her addiction masked her sorrow. Ruby often wondered, with these girls she worked with and considered family, if she could kick her habit and start fresh. The world was cruel and unfair, but that somehow never dimmed the hope in Ruby. Inside of the absolute darkness is a naked, underaged girl. And the dampness and the chill have set like wet cement around her, her hunger flourishing like red coals above her uterus. Her blood vessels searching everywhere, looking for that new, strange love. It was mandatory two days ago. Crack cocaine. She can hear the heavy footsteps walking across the floor above, and the floor hatch lifted open, the creaking of the two-by-four ladder, and then the heavy knees sliding across the dingy plastic viz queen that lies on the musty earth. The lock is rattling loosely, rattling for effect, and then silence, and she can hear her own breath fluttering, and her eyes are racing back and forth in the blackness. The combination wheels are clicking in the lock and it comes off into his hand, just on the other side of the wood, right in front of her face. The hasp creaks off the lock hoop and the heavy lid must be laying there now, loosely. She begins to weep, barely sounding like a whimper. The lid is whipped open and the light enters in and cold fresh air washes over her as a look of steam moves up towards the bare light bulb. The big man stares down at her, the light bulb behind him and he is all black. And he snatches down and roughly grabs her one large hand behind her knee and the other big hand in the nest of her hair and he hoists her out of the box and she is on the musky visqueen and she is following the rules now and she is looking down and burying her face into her arm she hears the plastic rustle beneath his knees and he grabs her hair stretches her up and slams her up against the box his hand somewhere above her ear he pops the other hand around her throat you get one shot in the box her eyes bulging out and her throat gurgling, and she wants to live, and a tear runs down her cheek. And then he finally made himself let go. He slumps her down on the ground and clicks open a knife. He cuts the ropes on her hands and feet, 
and tells her with heavy breath to climb up the steps, and she does. He scuttles over as she begins and watches her as she lifts her body up onto the floor and sits on her knees with her top sagging like a rag doll. He stares at her for a moment and then lumbers with cracking knees up out of the crawl space. He directs her to the bathroom in the finished basement. Desiree Lenkanoff was 14 when she was tossed out of her home a year after she was first sexually assaulted. She did what she could for shelter and Alaska's weather and soon for crack cocaine. Her missing poster noted the scar from a tattoo removal. Des had loved a drunkard named Daniel displayed on a tattoo on her arm. He would end up driving drunkardly with Des in the car, evading the police and crashing into another car, killing the child and the mother occupants. At 19, Desiree was hitchhiking and met a pilot. He would visit when he was in town and they soon got an apartment together. Her boyfriend did not use drugs or drink, which would be a constant strain on their relationship. Desiree would often relapse, disappearing and returning in between stints at rehabilitation. After dinner with her grandparents Thanksgiving weekend of 2001, she packed up again and left. This time, she did not return. He had referred to her flatly starting as, You stupid bitch. But the last part was under full breath and through clenched teeth. Her bluff stand collapsing down around her, and her one eye starting to wince as his fist was just about to crack into her jaw. Her teeth were not quite touching when her lower jaw crashes up into the top teeth. The numbness like the silty cold waves over a death of mudscape. And the thoughts were almost building in her mind, and she could see herself telling the younger girl what she'd always said she'd do. Words of bravado, daring herself over the ledge. Puzzled, he is a blur waiting over her as she starts to come around. With the buzzing tight swollen hum of her broken jaw, the tongue finding pebble chunks of tooth, too, had rattled down into the tongue's slick bed. Realization as the freight train blaring slams into her collarbones, that there are hands clenched around her neck, and the thoughts were almost building as she stared up at the lights in the dingy room. The silty wave washed over her eye, the stars smeared glassy and washed away in the strong current of the tide. The first torso that was discovered was the second to be identified. Desiree Lenkanoff, a 21-year-old girl who had been missing for 18 months. Her mother's DNA was collected by the Alaska State Troopers and given to the FBI National Missing Persons DNA Database in May of 2003, one month before Des's unidentified torso washed up. Her Jane Doe DNA would be matched to her mother's in July of 2004, a year after her body was recovered. The Second Torso Michelle Rothy's tattoo was identified as belonging to the sex worker Ruby. The M.E. confirmed Michelle's identity with Ruby's known fingerprints. 32-year-old Michelle had not been reported missing. She was last seen in June 2003, the month that Desiree's body was discovered. A distraught mother is telling the cops that while she's down here at the police department, 
she might as well let them know that Joe Boehm, who owns AIH, that he'd offered to buy her daughter. A couple of times. Unrelated though to this sexual assault that they were dealing with right now on the same 14-year-old girl. This is the guy with the house on 300 Ocean View Drive. They'd found all that homemade porn and crack. But his lawyer had shown effectively that there is no way to say the actual age of any of those girls in the photos. His laughter echoing later like a ghost in the back storage room in hell. And so the file had been floating in the dark. In September 2003, the same month Ruby was found a thousand yards from Joe Bohm's Ocean View home, several allegations of sex trafficking arose. A case was building and Joe Millionaire was leaving a trail of underage girls and drugs in his home, King's Court apartment, and area hotels. From Matanuska Valley to Anchorage, Joe Millionaire's home was known to be the place for young girls to run away or to get high in exchange for sex. Ruby and Desiree's cases remain unsolved. Joan Bohm claimed to have knowledge of the torsos and missing girls in Anchorage. However, in the 10 years he was incarcerated, or during the prosecution, no further information was acquired. But then the police being called to a routine problem guest at some shitty hotel. And they arrested a worn out old man with 15 grams of crack cocaine and $3,000 in a soft curve that you could fan out like a peacock. Both tucked into his heavy coat pockets. The old man is downcast, and they are preparing search warrants for 300 Ocean View and his condo. There was a 23-year-old girl they had with them, but they don't bring her out like she was going to try for. With the hotel sheet draped over her weeping, soft shoulders, a nurse and a cop helping her out into the blinking daylight. They interrupted the starting of her rescue and it's interrupted by the tug and the confusion of handcuffs locking onto her small wrists. They call her by name, Bambi Tyree. And this time it was different when they said the words, you are under arrest. For the charges of conspiracy of child sex trafficking and too many more, each integrated somehow with the words sex trafficking. The death flower had begun to open. Find us online at TC49 Podcast. See show notes for more information.